Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome into another edition of Mile High Magazine. Happy Sunday. I am Murphy Houston, always uh, bringing interesting guests in to let you know what's going on in our community as we speak. And today we have Luis Guzman, who's the Deputy Director of the Office of Children, Youth, and Family, part of the Colorado Department of Human Services. I get that right, Luis? That's right. Thank you. That's a big title. <laughs> I mean, how yeah. do you get that? <laughs> it, fits, it fits on the business card. It yeah. does? Yes. <laughs> it does. Well, how long have you been working over there? I've been there almost three years, and it's been a great experience working with Colorado's um, families in need. And let's explain that a little more before we get into our topic of foster care. What do you mean families in need? Is it basically foster care type stuff? It does include foster care, although we do have three major divisions. One is child welfare, so working with abused and neglected kids. Another is youth corrections. And a third is domestic violence. So we support all those three programs and divisions in the state. And I would say three tough divisions to be working with. Holy cow. Yes, sir. It keeps us busy, but um, the bottom line is always helping people out who need some support. Is that a big deal here in Colorado? Those three issues alone? It is. It is. And, you know, obviously Colorado is a wonderful state, and sometimes people are surprised to hear about some of the things, negative things going on in this state, just like any other state. So just a quick example um, Colorado, unfortunately, is a hub for human trafficking and particularly trafficking of small children for uh, sex abuse. So a lot of people are not aware of that in Colorado. You know, I had heard that before, and I was shocked. Yes, sir. Why, Colorado, no state's perfect, but we're, it's such a pristine place to be. And you hear those kind of stories, and you go, how does that happen? It's it's amazing uh, to think that that happens right here in this wonderful state. But uh, unfortunately, uh, this is a hub in terms of transporting uh, human trafficking victims from the East Coast to the West Coast or North and South. To Denver. Through Denver and through the state of Colorado. Um, this is a trafficking hub. So this is where people pass their victims through to get to whatever area the final destination is. Well, that's not our topic today, but... I know you work in that, and I'm just curious as to how that works, and I'm sure a lot of our friends listening now are surprised that that's happening and right in front of their eyes, maybe. Yeah, we'd love to come back and talk to you about that issue separately someday. Yeah, but today we're talking about the foster care landscape here in Colorado, and I know there's always a need for that, but why don't you start there, Luis? What is that kind of landscape in Colorado? Uh, well, like many states, Colorado is experiencing a statewide shortage of foster parents, and we need right now about 1,200 additional foster families by 2019, based on our estimates. Um, Colorado currently has just about 2,000 foster families supporting kids in foster care, but again, we need to up that number by about 1,200 foster families. And how do you know that um, this far in advance? Fortunately, um, the governor has supported um, a data-driven approach for the Colorado Department of Human Services, and so we've been fortunate enough to uh, collect and analyze uh, much of the data that affects our children and youth. So we do have some data when it comes to foster families and the projected need in the future. And maybe you can explain for those that may not know, most probably should, what is a foster child? Is this a child that's not adopted, it's in the system, and you try to place them with families? Is a kind of work like that? Yes, I think that's a great way of summarizing it. Um, it's a child or a youth who is in the child welfare system for any variety of reasons, whether it be abuse or neglect. Um, and uh, this child needs a home. And sometimes um, foster children just need a temporary home as opposed to an adoptive home. Uh, we want to give the parents of the child time to fix their situation and do what's necessary to ensure that they can provide a safe and happy home for their child. And so uh, sometimes a parent uh, needs to be, um, needs to have time, right? And sure. so a foster family sure. can fill that gap and care for the child um, during that rehabilitation or recovery period. And that's not an adoptive situation, obviously, but you probably have a lot of children that are in that situation. True, true. And in fact, uh, sometimes we'll have situations where a foster child will end up being adopted just because um, the the foster, or I'm sorry, the parents uh, will be unable to get their act together, so to speak, and the child will go up for adoption. And how many kids do you have in foster care now in the state of Colorado? 
currently we have um, we have approximately 1,600 Colorado children or teens who are living in a kinship family setting. That refers to a child who's living with relatives or friends who are providing a temporary home. And there's approximately 1,200 children or teens living with a foster family. And how long can that go on? Is there a limited time they can be with a foster family or let's say not until they get adopted, but how long? Right. It varies greatly. I mean, there's literally been situations where a child will be with a foster family overnight. Um, And there are situations where a foster child will, will be with a family for many years. So it's all across the board, across the spectrum of time. So, uh, we ask foster families to be prepared to make that commitment, um, even though we're not always sure how much time is going to be needed. And what is the age range of these children? Uh, across the board, again, um, we have children who are just a few weeks old to children who are um, aging out of the system, so to speak. So they're um, in their late teens. And then what happens to them after that? They're just on their own? Uh, unfortunately, in a lot of situations, they are on their own because they are no longer in the custody of the state. The child welfare system cannot um, have control over them in any way. Um, so we do have what's called transition programs um, so that uh, foster children um, have a soft landing towards adulthood, whether it be providing them support or services for housing or employment or otherwise. But unfortunately, there are cases in which uh, a youth goes out on the street, literally, and uh, doesn't have the support or services they need or turn down those support and services. And that's so sad to hear that, but I hear that tale quite a bit. Are you familiar with the Providence Network that's uh-huh. out there that takes, I, I hear, some of these children that are out of foster care and to prevent things happening to them, they take them in yes, and train them. Yes, and, and educate them a little bit further. So it's like a network there for the children you're talking about. Right. And it's so important to connect into those community networks or there's those pre-existing organizations or NGOs that are doing positive work in the street. So why is a foster home better for a child than, let's say, uh, like a group home or maybe a treatment center of some kind? Right. So research has shown that children and youth should be placed in what's called the least restrictive, most family-like setting possible. And federal and state law also support this premise. Now, congregate care, such as a residential child care facility or a group home, um, can be effective for intensive time-limited treatment. So we're talking about very high-need children or youth on a limited basis. However, Children and teens who live in congregate care, research shows, are at a greater risk of developing physical, emotional, behavioral problems that can lead to problems in school, a higher incidence of teen pregnancy, homelessness, unemployment, and incarceration. So children children and teens are also um, less likely to find a permanent home um, uh, as compared to those who live with a foster family. And when you talk of foster family, and we're going to get into this more because I know there might be a lot of people listening now, at least I hope there is, that are thinking about this. Do you have to have other children, natural-born children in that family situation? Or could you be a husband and a wife that think they're just going to do that themselves? Could you be a single person? Right. Uh, So very flexible. I think um, there's some misconceptions perhaps out there about uh, who can be a foster parent. Um, You don't have to be perfect to be a foster parent. All that matters is that you're ready to make a difference in a child or a teen's life at a time when they need you the most. You can be heterosexual or LGBTQ. You can be a homeowner or a renter, uh, single or married. You can be a parent or not a parent. Um, There's no restrictions on who can foster based on race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation or expression, gender identity or marital status. Foster parents do have to be at least 21 years old, pass a background check, complete training, and receive what's called a home study to make sure that the home is safe and that it's ready for the child. Uh, Foster parents must be able to use sound judgment and demonstrate a responsible, stable, and emotionally mature lifestyle. Um, So those are things we ask, and there is training involved. I think there would have to be some training. Yes, sir. To have these people prepared for the kind of child they might be getting? You know, um... Well, when it comes to training, first of all, um, every foster parent must complete trainings to become certified, and those trainings include things like CPR, first aid, and a variety of other things. The county or the child placement agency 
um, that you're working with uh, may also require other trainings. Colorado's child welfare training system provides foster kinship and adoptive parents with free required training in a day and a half course, as well as other ongoing learning opportunities throughout Colorado and online. And each year, foster parents are required to complete additional trainings to maintain their certification. And are you limited to how many foster children you can take in? There is a limit, although that limit can be waived. And unfortunately, I do not know the exact limitation number at this time. I believe it changed recently. Well, you'd have to be prepared to take on more than one, I would think. Yes, sir. And do you try to keep um, families together, brothers and sisters? Absolutely. That's very important to us. So one of the things that we do in our outreach is always um, we're always happy to find folks who are willing to take siblings or groups of siblings. Um, certainly, uh, it is absolute last resort to separate uh, siblings. We do not want to do that. So the more foster families we can get who are willing to take siblings, um, the better off Colorado's youth will be. Oh, absolutely. You want to keep those families together. Yes, sir. And even when you go through the adoptive process, you try to probably keep those families together. Absolutely. That's all part of it. And what about children that have excessive needs? Do you kind of avoid them leaving maybe a treatment center or someplace where it might be not a danger necessarily to a foster family, but just an overload of work where they're going, oh, my gosh, who knew? Right. So interestingly enough, uh A Colorado legislation was just passed that um, allows us to better support foster parents. And one of the ways that we can do that is to provide foster parents with the information they need. So information would include medical background and medical information so that the foster parents know um, the background of the child ahead of time. Um, We certainly ask foster parents when they first approach whether they're willing to accept children of higher needs or special needs. if a foster parent or pr- prospective foster parent says no, that's okay. Um, but we're all, we always ask those questions to see if we can match up um, foster parents with kids with higher needs. Good idea. So if any prospective foster parents out there, there probably won't be any surprises to the best of your ability for them. That's right. We don't want to surprise anyone, and that doesn't work well for the foster child or the foster parent or making this uh, a healthy a stable place for the child. We're talking to uh, Luis Guzman, who's the Deputy Director of the Office of Children, Youth, and Family, part of the Colorado Department of Human Services. Are there a lot of children now? I mean, you talk about the perspective or down the future of 2019, the need. What's it like right now for children? So right now, um, we have 800 children or teens who are living in this congregate care setting. That's the residential child care facility or those group homes that you mentioned earlier. And so all of those children and teens are in a place where they would be uh, in a be happy to join a foster family. So um, I would say at least 800 at this moment um, and 1,200 new foster homes um, going into next year are required. And all those children you just mentioned, they're not mainly here in the metro Denver area. They're probably throughout the state. That's correct. That's correct. And so part of our recruitment effort isn't simply adding 1,200 foster families to our rosters, but also to get uh, a larger pool of foster parents in uh, a variety of areas uh, in the state um, so that we are making the best possible uh, placements for these children. One of the things that uh, we've struggled with is that when we don't have sufficient foster families or we don't have them in a variety of uh, geographic areas throughout the state, We are sometimes in a position where we have to place or feel compelled to place a child with a foster family um, who is not in their um, in the youth's geographic uh, home area. And that causes a variety of issues. Uh, The child or youth um, has to change schools. Um, They don't have access to some of their adult support systems or their institutional support systems in their geographic area. Correct. Um, There's research out there that shows that uh, making multiple moves or moves to various geographic areas um, can increase or exacerbate the trauma that this child or youth has experienced. So the more foster families we have in a greater variety of areas, the better off the children and youth of Colorado are. Oh, exactly. You want to keep them as comfortable as possible while they go through this process in their life, right? Yeah, very very traumatic for these kids. Yeah, I'm sure it really is. And I'm curious, if you're a foster parent and you are fostering, there's no adoptive process here, 
Is there any chance that the families, the biological families of these children could be interfering? Are they going to come knocking on your door saying, hey, I want my kid back? Or do they avoid that? Or you try to help them avoid that? You know, what's really interesting about that is we found that the most successful foster families, uh, for the most part, are those who reach out to and keep in touch with the biological parents and who understand that this is a temporary situation and that the child is going to be going back most likely to their biological parent or parents and that having a positive relationship with that biological parent or parents is in the best interests of the child. Now, I realize that that may not be the preference of every foster family. It may not even be the preference of the biological parent. So that is a flexible arrangement and the uh, placement agencies or the counties um, who are handling this foster family placement are happy to work with the foster families to ensure they have the arrangement with the biological family that the foster family is most comfortable with. Well, I would think if there was some contact that would help perhaps heal the problem at hand here, both with the biological problems in that child or, or the biological parents in that child, they could get things back together maybe a little quicker. Right. And so one of the things that foster families would experience or do experience here in Colorado is that the biological parents may have visitation rights um, and the foster families would meet in a safe environment, um, oftentimes the uh, county Department of Human Services, uh, to, to allow the child to be with the biological parent or parents. Um, but again, uh, if there's more contact um, uh, that is preferable for the foster family, then that can be a flexible arrangement according to the child and the foster family's needs. And do you guys over there at the Department of Human Services kind of monitor that or help work with that situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when there is a, uh, let's say, a child, um, the child visits uh, their biological parent, um, those are supervised visits. Um, In many instances, uh, they don't have to be, but it really depends on the court to a great degree. So um, the county Department of Human Services may not be able to um, delineate uh, the exact uh, visitation requirements because that's the job of the court. But when those visitations do occur, whether they're supervised or not, the county can and will be involved. And can that situation established by the court, can that change? Yes, absolutely, Uh, depending on uh, perhaps the uh, work of the biological parent to improve their situation. The the court can change the visitation um, order. Well, and of course, one of the big questions I think of anybody's listening now thinking, boy, that's maybe something we can do is the financial concern, especially mm-hmm. if they have other children and you know jobs, and can I afford to take that on? Is there help for them? Right. So I think foster parent support is something that we're really honing in on in Colorado. Um, the Colorado Department of Human Services did a traveling um, forum uh, through which we went out to various communities throughout the state and met up with foster parents to hear their experiences Um, their issues, their problems. And what we heard was a lack of support or a lack of information from many of these foster parents. Um, So one of the things that we did was uh, that uh, legislation that I mentioned earlier in in which um, not only do parents get uh, improved information on the child, but the legislation also allows Colorado counties to prioritize child care assistance for foster parents because we heard that Child care is a huge issue for foster parents, so we wanted to help out on that front. Also, um, foster parents can find support groups through the county or child placement agency that certified them. They can also find support groups online at organizations such as the Adoption Exchange or the Colorado State Foster Parent Association. And also, foster parents do receive a monthly reimbursement to help with costs of providing food, shelter, clothing, and other related expenses. And that's provided by the state, or is that a federal? That is provided by the state, um, although there are federal laws that um, impose that as well. That help with that situation? Yes, sir. So what about medical care for these foster children? Is Do you have to have health insurance for your family, and they're included with that, or is that a separate deal entirely? So foster children and youth uh, are eligible for Medicaid, and one of the things that we heard in those foster family forums um, when we traveled around the state to listen to foster parents was that not all of them had the correct information to sign up for Medicaid 
Um, some of them uh, had inconsistent information. So that's another thing we're working on, um, just providing consistent information to foster parents so that they know that their foster child or youth is eligible for Medicaid and Medicaid will cover much of their health care costs. Well, and if you're a family situation listening right now as well, and maybe you need this kind of help, not not becoming a foster family, but you're a family that's in a crisis and they want to maybe help get their child out. Do you work with that end of it too? So we at the Colorado Department of Human Services um, do handle child welfare for the state. And Colorado is what's called a state-supervised, county-administered child welfare system. So the county, each individual county, handles the administration of child welfare in their geographic county area. And so they would handle um, the uh, family supports to a family that's in crisis. And so they do have an array of services um, to support uh, families who, in the case of a foster situation, need time to improve their situation so that they can show the court or the system that they are ready again to take on their biological child and support them in a healthy and safe and loving home. So you're not really involved with that then? The court and the state is running that? So the state yeah. the state and the counties um, are, are the ones providing um, a, an array of services, a spectrum of services okay. to families in crisis. Well, let's talk about how does someone become a foster parent? Let's, we've talked about it enough, and how do we get involved? So the first step is to contact your local county department of human services, or you can contact a child placement agency and attend an informational meeting. You can find the dates, times, and locations of information meetings on each organization's website. However, information meetings are also listed on the co4kids.org event calendar, which is our uh, website. And again, that's co, the number four, k-i-d-s dot o-r-g. And all that information is on there. That's right. And so what's the first step? Once you read that information, they call you and say, uh, let's get together. Is there like an initial meeting to kind of you get a feel for this family if they're legit or this is going to work out, that kind of thing? Right. So uh, after going to an information meeting and reaching out to your local county, um, there would be the certification process. um, And at that point, there would be an opportunities to meet um, potential foster children. So various counties will try uh, different um, methods of doing so. One of the more interesting ones I've heard are basically meet and greets, where there's oh. a safe, comfortable environment and the kids get to run around and play and the families can come in and see if there's a match. So one of the most important things to a county is ensuring that they have a good match. Because if they don't, if they're rushing something or if they're just trying to place a child um, who's been hard to place with a family who walks in the door, um, they know that they're going to decrease the possibility that the match is going to work out. So they're very, very careful in terms of matching the right child or youth with the right family. And boy, you don't want to do any more harm to those foster children by making the wrong match. That's exactly right. I can't imagine how traumatic that would be. Yes, it's unfortunate. And in fact, uh, a recent study done by uh, the Colorado Department of Human Services showed that the average foster youth during their high school years uh, experiences five different high schools. Oh. And if you've ever been a teenager oh, going yeah. into high school, oh. um, I really could not imagine the trauma of being taken away from my family because I've been abused or neglected and then being placed with multiple foster families and having to attend five different high schools, and the research shows that every time a foster child moves to another high school, that the chances of them graduating on time or achieving positive educational outcomes decreases rapidly. Boy, you sure want to avoid that. That would be horrible. I mean, I've raised four children. Those teen years, holy cow. And it's bad (laughs) enough if you're with you and your biological kids. Right. Let alone handling another one that's not necessarily your child. If you do have other children, you talked about these meet and greets. Hmm. Do these families, that these prospective uh, foster parents, Bring those kids in and see how they get along with maybe the foster child? I believe they do. I believe it's an open forum to bring in um, the entire nuclear family and get to meet a bunch of wonderful 
children and youth who are really in dire straits and need the support and love of a foster family. And you know pretty quick, I would think, if there's going to be a match, don't you? You know, it's interesting to hear uh, different counties' take on it. Um, sometimes they uh, see a match, um, love at first sight in some ways, uh, and and sometimes it takes time, right? It depends on the foster family. It depends on the, the youth and the child. Sometimes those children, those youth, are very guarded um, because of the abuse or the neglect or the trauma that they've experienced. And if it's an older foster child, again, let's say a teenager like we just talked about, do they have a hand in that decision, saying, I really don't want to go with that family? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, there needs to be a match on both ends, right? It's a two, yeah. It's a two-way street, and the child and the youth has to be comfortable as well. And again, something, uh, Luis, we talked about earlier, there is training for these foster parents about what to expect and how that works. Can you go over that maybe a little again? Sure. So uh, I should make clear that that training is free. It's provided by Colorado's Child Welfare Training System. It provides not just foster parents, but uh, relatives who want to take in a child temporarily and uh, permanent adoptive parents as well with the free required training. It takes about a day and a half. And there are ongoing learning opportunities, and those are available in a variety of areas throughout the state and also online. And that information is available online. Why don't you give that website a couple sure, of more times? Absolutely. Let's so, uh, get some people interested here. <laughs> that's right. So it's www.co4kids.org. That's C-O, the number four, K-I-D-S dot org, co4kids.org, and all that information that I've talked about and more will be on there for you. How about a phone number? I mean, if they have immediate questions, is there a place to go for that? Maybe that's on the website as well. There is a phone number on the website as well. It's all on that website. I, I don't have it on me, unfortunately. Well, it's all through the Colorado Department of Human Services, and this is, again, Luis Guzman, who's the Deputy Director of the Office of Children, Youth, and Family. Uh, We can see that the need is growing here in the state of Colorado to become foster parents. Do you have any really cool success stories, maybe off the top of your head? I'm putting you on the spot here for that. No, I I do. In fact, um, we uh, recently had a foster parent um, recognition event at at the governor's mansion, and uh, the first lady of uh, Colorado spoke at that event. We also had the executive director of the Department of Human Services, uh, executive director Reggie Bika at that event. And more importantly, we had... um, several foster families um, who we were recognizing for their excellent work over the years, um, fostering uh, children and youth. And these families um, across the board uh, tell us that they benefit as much, if not more so, than the children that they care for and love. And you find a lot of these foster families that exist now Repeat. I mean, if they have a child move on, do they take on other challenges? Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, hence the recognition at those events. Some of those people have literally taken on dozens of children over decades. And so the commitment to ensuring that Colorado's children and youth have a positive future is outstanding and worthy of recognition. Well, they deserve to be recognized, yes, a family sir. that step up like that. Yes, sir. In fact, uh, I've met families who have several biological children and several foster children. Oh, there has to be some residual connection there. I mean, it would be so hard <laughs> right. if that foster child really connects with your family, and then you have to separate. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it, that must be very difficult. Um, but the foster families tell me that oftentimes they will see those children and youth Um, over the years and that they'll still refer to them as mom or dad or uncle or grandpa or a variety of of different. Yeah, exactly. Do you find, uh, grandpa, that threw something into my head. Do you find retired grandparents doing the foster child thing? We do. In fact, I would say just in my experience meeting foster families that the majority of them are middle-aged or older. Um, That's just anecdotal, but uh, that's to say that there are plenty of um, more mature uh, families out there who are uh, willing to take on foster families and it works out quite well. So there is no real age limit there, except if on the young end, maybe. Yes, you have to be 21 or uh, older. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Well, let's help out. If you've been thinking about that and now you've heard our conversation with Luis here and you want to get involved, once again, let's give them that web website they can go to, Luis. That's www.co4kids.org. C-O, the number four, K-I-D-S dot org. There are a lot of kids in need in the state of Colorado and many more needed by 2019. What's the number? 
we need another 1,200 families, foster families in Colorado uh, by next year. Luis Guzman, Deputy Director of the Office of Children, Youth, and Family. Thanks for coming in today. What a pleasure. Thank you. Sharing that, sharing that information. Let's hope that uh, gets people interested on that website. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And we thank uh, all the work they're doing over there at the Colorado Department of Human Services. And we thank you guys for stopping in today. Another edition of Mile High Magazine. I am Murphy Houston. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll talk to you next week. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. The opioid crisis has been overshadowing most other health challenges, yet still around are health issues from cancer to sleep apnea. For many boomers aging into their 60s and 70s, the specter of Alzheimer's is becoming all too very real. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. The leading source of information and support for the families, caregivers, and the 65,000 persons living with Alzheimer's in the state is the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. On this edition, a conversation on the single health issue many boomers fear the most with Amelia Schaefer, Director of Professional Education of the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. The fear of Alzheimer's has now uh, gone higher than the fear of cancer for the first time since they started asking, especially in boomers. And I think it's mostly the fear of the unknown, and we don't have a cure, and we don't know what causes it. So there's a lot we don't know, which I think is what leads to that fear. Is there a lot of old husband's tales that are entering into it that you lose everything immediately as soon as you find out you may have it and you can't do anything in 10 days? Is You have all those old husband tales like that that are out there circulating without any real information and research behind them? We definitely do. I think, you know, we hear that aluminum causes Alzheimer's, maybe coconut oil cures Alzheimer's, and we hear that, you know, once you get Alzheimer's, you're doomed. And we know it's not that way. Yeah. We now talk to people who are still driving with Alzheimer's, who are still working in jobs with Alzheimer's. We know that we don't see a cure for Alzheimer's yet, including coconut oil. And we don't know what causes it. So, you know, they've ruled out things like aluminum. But um, I think that the unknown, because we haven't done enough research, yeah. there's so much we don't know. And so it leads people, I think, to think the worst and maybe think of that one example from 20 years ago and mm-hmm. um, before we really were using Alzheimer's on a daily basis. Well, if it was aluminum, boomers are in real trouble because those aluminum cans we've been drinking stuff out of for the last 40 years. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we're all done in. No doubt about that. <laughs> that's true. But it's it's a, a malady that's going to continue to increase. And I guess you were saying the fear of the unknown. So. Um, people don't know if they're going to be affected by it or not, but some genetic tests are there that can at least give you a clue. Yeah. Well, actually, I think probably the best thing is to start with knowing what the warning signs are. Mm -hmm. Before you would go to a genetic test or even go to a doctor, just you and I knowing what the warning signs are. And most people think that memory loss is the only thing associated with Alzheimer's, but that's only one of 10 signs. Yeah. So there are personality changes that can happen and changes in functioning day to day that happen, um, forgetting certain words or forgetting how to communicate. A Life at 50 Plus convention, and they had a workshop on the brain. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that some senior moments are really caused by the brain having so much information it has to sort through to find what you really want. That pause makes it feel like something's wrong with you, but it isn't. It's just sorting info. When you're younger, you don't have very much in your head and they can get there faster. It's true. (laughs) I mean, it's true. There are lots of changes when you're a boomer. There are lots of changes that happen in your whole body Mm -hmm. as you're aging and your brain is certainly part of that. So it's it's even figuring out, is this normal or is this something that would make me want to go see my doctor? Because boomers like information. They try to find it every single step and make their own evaluation. So speaking of that information, you already mentioned it. Give us maybe the first one or two uh, of the 10 steps. Yeah. So the memory loss, what I would say about that is it's short-term memory loss. So it's it's not something you forgot 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's forgetting, did you eat breakfast this morning? Forgetting the appointment that you set with the doctor. It's really forgetting the things that have happened recently in your life. Mm-hmm. And that's where some people get confused. So so it's not just any memory loss. It's the things that have happened recently. The things that are happening now. Exactly. And, exactly. and it isn't because you got distracted doing something else. You just 
forgot about it. You forget the entire incident. So a good example is we had a family caller helpline who said, you know, I'm worried about my mom. Uh, the last two times I've called her, she forgot our entire conversation and, in fact, forgot we even had a conversation. So it wasn't just I forgot a detail because I was distracted. You know, the mom said, when are you going to call me? We never talk anymore. And the uh, daughter says, wow, we, we've had conversations the last two Sundays. And then the person sort of says, well, you know, I had something else to do. It didn't happen. I'm fine. Because a lot of boomers are really in denial of even becoming seniors. Exactly. You know, not all t- talking about boomers with this, but. Um, yeah. So I would say another one is if you notice changes kind of in your mood. So mm-hmm. changes in. Your ability to cope with stress, maybe stressors in life, uh, different reactions than you would normally have to certain things happening. No, Sometimes, no, come on. You got road rage out there right now. People <laughs> driving by, eh, 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 it's all about me. So if I go nuts because some guy did that, doesn't mean I need an Alzheimer's test. No, because here's the thing. It's not necessarily someone going nuts. Okay. It's someone who used to always go nuts, still going nuts. That's pretty normal. Yeah. But someone who used to go nuts, who has a change and now is really mellow and doesn't seem to really be in tune with it, that's the issue. It's It's... It's if you're not going nuts on the road when you used to, or it's maybe going nuts on the road when you didn't used to. Or maybe snapping at someone if you're not on the road that you usually would not have done that. Exactly. And and you have to see this over time. It's not because you snapped this week. Yep. And maybe next week, all of a sudden, I got a problem. Yep. It's a pattern. And that's why a lot of times uh, people wait a good two years before they go to a doctor. They'll notice signs of, of... you know, memory issues and some of the other signs we we are going to talk about. And they wait two years before they go to the doctor on average. Now, um, and this can start, what, you have something called early onset? Yeah, so... Okay, now, what's that? That's a good question. You'll hear it called early onset or younger onset, which is a better description because it's when someone is younger than the typical age. So we're talking people usually in their 40s or 50s. 40s? 40s, Yes. Yes, in fact, we currently are working with families uh, who come to us when they're in their 40s. Now, it's rare. It's mm-hmm. only yeah, 1% yes, 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 of yes, sure, the sure. cases. Yeah. It's not that common, but, it's, but it's, um, it's out there. And it's even more confusing, as you can imagine, since age is the number one risk mm-hmm. factor. Mm-hmm. These folks you know, often don't get a good diagnosis for a few years, and it leads to a lot of complications. Can it be misdiagnosed then, too? Oh, most definitely. Usually it's misdiagnosed by saying, oh, this is normal. That's the usual diagnosis, misdiagnosis. Usually if people are misdiagnosed, they might say you have Alzheimer's and a couple years down the line say, you know, we don't think it's Alzheimer's. It might be another form of dementia Mm -hmm. like Lewy body or frontotemporal dementia. That's more common. It's mm-hmm. more common that it's misdiagnosed. And then you have to watch out for the old guy's tales of, uh-huh, I saw you forgot those keys last week. You did this. You need to go get checked. Exactly. And a lot of your friends have no clue. Exactly. Well, and that's why we have all the information on our website and mm-hmm. and through phone and through all of our pamphlets that we put out there and education classes because that's education is the key, mm-hmm. really. Now, some of the education classes that you're speaking of, can a person start to attend those to get themselves up on Alzheimer's and how it may affect them? Definitely. One of our most popular classes is called Know the Ten Signs. And the usual audience member is not someone with Alzheimer's. It's people who are scared, who maybe have a, a friend or family with yeah, Alzheimer's, yeah, and, yeah. and they're wondering themselves. So it's really another way to just find out what's going on. And then we have another class called The Basics, which is once you know you have Alzheimer's, what do you need to know? What does it look like? What it, what do the stages look like? What can I do if I have Alzheimer's mm-hmm. to still live a good quality life today? And then what can I do if I'm a caregiver or care partner to do my best with this person I love? Now, everyone is always told regarding our health, if there's something negative, I always get a second opinion right. or a third opinion. Do we do the same thing with Alzheimer's to confirm yeah, I think it depends. We we think you should get a second opinion because, yeah. unfortunately, we hear from many of our helpline callers that their doctor said, oh, things are fine. You know, if you if you still have problems, come see me next year. But we know that early treatment is the best treatment, and we also know that early planning is the best planning. So through our helpline, we actually give out lists of memory clinics and lists of doctors 
who are more in tune to Alzheimer's, and, and we can help families navigate that right. to try to find out as soon as possible. Give us two more warning signs. You bet. Another problem that starts to happen is, you know how you and I wake up every day and we know all the things we have to do that day? Yeah, and it makes us go back to bed. It makes us go crazy. It makes, <laughs> yeah. makes us turn into road rage, right? Yes. <laughs> well, for people, <laughs> for people with Alzheimer's, many times they wake up and they don't have a to-do list in their head. They, they have a hard time organizing their thoughts, organizing their plans, and then following through and executing a plan. And so sometimes a, a, a person will go a whole day and you really don't know what they did. And, and the yeah. person themselves will be a little frightened by that sometimes. They don't know what they did. They don't know what they did. Many times they'll say, I don't know where the last eight hours went. I've had people with Alzheimer's say to me, I have no idea where the last four hours of my life went. They'll find chunks wow. of time that, that it's just gone. It's just gone. Yep. Yeah, and sometimes, most days you do think about, oh, what am I going to do today? But other days you say, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> right? And so since you have, you, you, you're going to be blank. Oh. But if you have one of those, you don't have Alzheimer's. You're just not going to do anything. Exactly. But you won't even have that thought that I'm not going to do anything today. Well, and you'll start noticing the consequences of that because, for instance, if you go about your life not yeah. completing the tasks you need to complete – your groceries don't, you know, uh, oh, your gro- yeah. the grocery store visit doesn't happen and your electricity bill doesn't get paid. And so you'll start to notice the consequences. You'll you'll get a call from the doctor saying you just missed an appointment again. Where were mm-hmm. you? So pretty soon the outside world really starts to notice that something is going on here. So the symptom, symptoms have results uh, that impact you. They definitely do. And depending on what the person's social system is, sometimes if they have family members who step in, it's the family who notices first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or the person themselves will ask for help and they notice. But it's not the same for every single family. It's really different. And and this is something that you listen to your kids if they're saying that to you. But more than likely, if you're married, a spouse, if you're partnered, the partner. Yep. It's a spouse and partner who often really notices. Although sometimes it's the kids who maybe live out of state. And they only see mom and dad. Oh, yeah. They would notice a change in her. Exactly. In fact, January is a really busy month for us because families get together at the holidays. And we will get calls on our helpline with people saying, I don't know what's going on, but something is not right with my mom. Mm -hmm. She's not the Mm -hmm. same. And I noticed a little bit in the summer, but things have really changed. And so it's, it's a time when we start to really get the message out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the fourth one? So another sign is when someone has always been great at a certain task. Yeah. So maybe your mom was great at uh, you know, paying the bills and maybe mm-hmm. your dad was great at cooking, right? So what you notice then is all of a sudden these familiar tasks become very difficult for the individual. The things that were always pretty easy now right. and are And you difficult. know they do them well. And you know they do them well and, and it just doesn't make sense. And you can't put your finger on it, but something is not right. That is a real red flag. That's what we would consider one of the warning signs. One of the real warning signs of go get everything checked. Definitely. And know where it is. How many uh, how many people that you all know that do the studies say have Alzheimer's in Colorado? In Colorado, we have 63,000 people with Alzheimer's. 63,000? Yep. And it is only... Is this various, various stages or just in the total... Yep. That's thing. the total, total number. And you're right. There are various stages, but this is the total number in terms of incidence in Alzheimer's in Colorado. We know it's the sixth leading cause of death, but probably more concerning to us is it's the only cause of death in the top 10 causes that doesn't have a way to slow it, does not have a cure, and we really, really, really need research. And I know you you know about this, but we need research to understand how to get to that place. Mm-hmm. Dr. Huntington Potter out at the University of Colorado indicated, I guess there's some human trials going on with a medication that's used for rheumatoid arthritis. Correct. That's being, that, that has promising results. It's almost like get arthritis and you can get treated for Alzheimer's. I know, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't Wouldn't know that be nice? Which one is there? Um, in your estimation, is, is that going to really help somehow? even though you're not a doctor, and we understand that. Yeah, I think research is the key because in all other major health epidemics, uh-huh. really the way we have seen progress 
And the reason that every other health epidemic is on the decline in terms of the number of deaths is because of research. So while we are here as a care and support organization at the Alzheimer's Association, we really see ultimately that we need to help raise uh, funding for research as well as awareness of research to, to get people into research yeah. because that's how we're really going to make the change and make a difference. So that's what we uh, believe in terms of research. We want to connect the people who need to be involved and we want to get that funding out there in any way possible. Amelia Schaefer of the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado is our guest on this edition. We'll continue our conversation with her on our next. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Hi, it's Melissa Moore, and welcome to Mile High Magazine. We're excited. Denver has Pride Fest coming up here very, very soon, just a week out, really, at this point. And I'm thrilled to have in here the Vice President of Communications, Corporate Giving, GLBT Community Center of Colorado's Rex Fuller. Hi. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having us in today. Well, thank you for being here. So how many years has Pride Fest been going on here in Colorado? Well, there's been an LGBT pride celebration of some kind starting in 1976 in Denver. The uh, center that I work for has been producing it since 1990. So this will be our 28th year of putting the festival together. That's exciting. That really kind of says a lot to to Colorado and Denver being very progressive. I think it's true. Um, we have had um, really a lot of landmark Things occur in terms of LGBT civil rights um, Mm -hmm. in the history of of Denver for going back many years, Mm -hmm. um, starting with uh, civil rights legislation that happened in the 70s on up to today. Right. And how have you seen Pride Fest change over the years? Well, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) Um, It is uh, last year we... Uh, hosted about 385,000 people over two days at the festival. And then we had about 120,000 spectators at the parade that we do on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We've really become the largest regional celebration of LGBT pride in the Rocky Mountain region. And one of the biggest in the country. Is that correct? We're definitely up there. It kind of depends on how you uh, measure it. Mm -hmm. One thing that distinguishes our festival is that we're a free festival. So that definitely moves us up the list in terms of one of the largest free festivals in the country. And once again, Pride Fest is coming up next weekend. June 16th and 17th at Civic Center Park. And there are three stages, 250 vendors. I mean, it's a big deal. What I know in every year has a theme. What is this year's theme? The theme this year is Say It Loud, Say It Proud. Um, We have made a lot of progress over the last 20, 30 years in terms of LGBT civil rights, but there's always more to do. And certainly right now, I think the tension, uh, there's a tension among many people in the community um, and concern about civil rights in general. Mm-hmm. So we really chose a theme to really speak to that and encourage people to come out and be visible and participate in the community. And for people who have never been to Pride Fest, first off, where is it? It's at Civic Center Park in downtown uh, Denver, um, right between the state capitol and the city and county building. There's a big park there. And we take it over for the entire two days. Um, And uh, we also have the parade on Sunday morning. um, And that stages in Cheeseman Park about a mile away. And then people march out of Cheeseman uh, down Colfax Avenue and then right to the park. Wonderful. Well, we have so many new people moving in to Colorado all the time. For people who've maybe moving in, never been, or people who've lived here, never been to Pride Fest, um, tell us a little bit, like, what is it all about? What is the feel? Because it's two days, and they both have a different feel to them. Well, we, I, I think you're right. Um, I would say overall, the purpose of the event is definitely to give visibility to the LGBT community, but it's also to be a welcoming, really fun, good time. Mm-hmm. And certainly, we have expanded beyond the LGBT community. There's lots of folks who come down, and I think that one of the great things to enjoy about the festival is just there's all kinds of people there. There right. just just about every kind of person you can think of is probably going to come through Pride Fest at some point or another uh, over the weekend. 
Um, on Saturday, we really welcome families to mm-hmm. the event. We have a very active family area and a lot of family-friendly activities. And I'd say that Saturday may be maybe a little more mellow in mm-hmm. some cases, although it's really been picking up in some years. So it's a great day to come down and just you know look around, see all the exhibitors, enjoy some of the entertainment and that sort of thing. Sunday morning uh, kicks off with the Coors Light Pride Fest Parade, and that really adds a a real celebratory nature to it, and it really gets the crowds going. So right after the parade, you know, going into the afternoon, that's when the the festival really surges. Mm -hmm. That's also when we have a lot of our real high-profile entertainment on on some of our stages. So people really get, get going and dancing and carrying on and enjoying themselves. And speaking of the entertainment, you have three stages. Um, what are some of the highlights of the entertainment this year? Sure. Um, center stage, which takes place at the Greek Amphitheater, the largest stage in the park, um, has two full days of entertainment from all across the community. On um, Sunday afternoon at 3 p.m., one of our biggest headliners is the singer Crystal Waters. She had a hit a few years ago with the song 100% Tr- uh, Pure Love, and we're very excited to have her come. I've, I've been really happy to hear the enthusiasm that we've been getting from the community about mm-hmm. her. And then if anybody's a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race, we have um, three of the drag queens from that show who will be performing over the weekend. On Saturday afternoon, Cameron Michaels will be here. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, uh, they go by the nickname, the bodybuilder Barbie, um, <laughs> which That's I think awesome. is pretty funny. <laughs> Um, and then on Sunday afternoon, we have Thorgy Thor, who is really kind of a comedian drag queen, along with um, Morgan McMichaels. And both of them have actually been on two seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, we have our Latin stage, mm-hmm. which has a lot of entertainment, again, from across the community, everything from mariachi to hip hop and uh, uh, step dancers and all kinds of great entertainers there. And then... Um, at the Dance World stage, we've got DJs, really, I'd say some of the best DJs in Denver will be playing there over the weekend. And the festival closes out with um, DJ Barry Harris, and he, um, he'll he close out the festival on Sunday afternoon. Awesome. You definitely said it right when you said there's really something for everybody. We try and make the festival that way. Yeah. And we try and make it um, so that Really, anybody can find a way to enjoy themselves. Right. There's right. certainly the high-energy dance music and the party that's mm-hmm. going on. But we also have, like I said, the family area. We have an area for LGBT youth. We even have an area for seniors. Oh, that's wonderful. And did I read right? There's also a Pride 5K? There is. That kicks off on Saturday morning at 930 uh, we start at the state capitol, run up 14th to Cheeseman Park and back. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really great way to start off the festival. It's a way that we're trying to um, also emphasize healthy living mm-hmm. um, as as part of it. So we have some great folks involved in that to, to promote be, leading an active lifestyle. That is wonderful. And if you're just joining me, we're talking to Rex Fuller, who is with the GLBT Community Center of Colorado Pride Fest coming up next weekend. Um, what are some of the misconceptions you've heard over the years that people have of Pride Fest? I think that probably people might be nervous about coming down. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they're, they're not, maybe they're less familiar with the the LGBT community, and so they're not sure what to expect, and they might be nervous about that. And what I think that they find when they get there is actually that it's really just a fun time. It's really a great way to enjoy yourselves. And to be yourself and to celebrate that. exactly. You know, and to have two full days downtown, and it's a party. (laughs) It is a great celebration and party atmosphere. But like you said, Saturday, too, really, uh, you do put that focus on families. Yeah, we really do try and and put um, just a, a wide range of activities. One of the things that'll be fun in the family area um, is uh, we're working with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, mm-hmm. who will be bringing some family-friendly science learning activities um, to the festival. I think that'll be good. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a family-friendly dance area, and so there'll be music appropriate for kids Mm -hmm. and they can dance but they can also do things like 
play musical chairs and stuff right. like that. <laughs> right. That is going to be a lot of fun. And so this is obviously a big undertaking. Um, do you have a need for volunteers? We always have a need for volunteers. Okay, good, good. <laughs> uh, I should make sure I say our webpage. It's denverpride.org. And at that webpage, there's a place to sign up for, to volunteer shift. Uh, over the course of two days, we'll probably bring in a little better than 400 volunteers who all make it happen. There's a real core of about 22 volunteers who work for months to put the, the festival together. And then on the day of, there's uh, lots of folks who come in and help. I think what's also great about that is it it's another opportunity to learn about the LGBTQ community in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we've ended up having people who intended to just come and help for the weekend and have become really loyal volunteers over the years at the center. Um, this whole The whole reason that we put this together is that it's the GLBT Community Center's largest annual fundraiser. So it helps support programs serving um, the LGBT community, including youth and seniors, the trans community, as well as training and legal programs. And those those programs go on year-round. And mm-hmm. about 47,000 people annually benefit from the programs at the center. So it it's really great how Pride Fest helps us propel that for the mm-hmm. rest of the year. Well, that's a, that's a great reminder, too, that it's not just a celebration, but also a fundraiser. Right. And a right. way, you know, and what you're funding, too. And I think that's important for the community to know. Uh, once again, Pride Fest coming up next weekend. It's June 16th and 17th. Three stages, 250 vendors. Uh, let's start off again. The 5K is where on Saturday morning? That's Saturday morning at 930. And folks can sign up at our website at denverpride.org. And then the Coors Light um, Pride Fest Parade is Sunday morning. Sunday morning, also at 930. And that'll that'll be our biggest parade that we have ever done. It's going right now. We have two hundred and eleven entries. Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be a long parade. There's it is going to be. It's going to take a minute. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the right after the parade on the west steps of the Capitol is also going to be a rally hosted by our friends at One Colorado, which is an advocacy group for the LGBT community. So many um, politicians will be speaking there and some other guests will be speaking on the west steps of the Capitol as the parade winds down. Tell me this as we're kind of wrapping things up here. Why is Pride Fest important to Colorado? I think that Pride Fest is important for a lot of different reasons. Certainly, I've mentioned the reasons that it's important for the center because it's a fundraiser. Right. It's also important to... The community at large, we did an economic impact study a few years ago, and every year this generates a little more than $25 million in economic activity in the city and county of Denver. Is that right? It's true. So That is a huge amount of money. It's bringing in folks from outside the metropolitan area, and it's bringing, um, uh, you know, so that's hotel stays, that's restaurant stays, but it's also... uh, really important for a lot of LGBT business owners that this is one of their biggest weekends of the year. So we want to support that. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important for a lot of people personally. Um, I, you know, it's possible for many people to perhaps be part of the LGBT community, but not be out about it and to be unsure. And I think that what's great is that this is an opportunity for you to come and you're probably going to find somebody out there in this vast sea of people that you can relate to Mm -hmm. and that you can build community. So we've really made it our goal to really try and build community through Pride. What is your hope and your goal as we look to future years with Pride Fest? Well, I think that it's going to continue to grow. We're very excited about 2019. Um, Pride Fest grows out of the pride movement. There are gay pride events all across the country. And they're always in June because in 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, there was um, a a riot um, where there was a a police raid on a gay bar. And this time the patrons of the bar fought back. And that's really considered by many to be kind of the beginning of the modern gay rights, civil, civil rights movement. So Traditionally, in many cities, that's why June is Pride Month. 
Okay. Well, 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of that event. Mm. So I think that it's going to be big all over the country. And certainly we, we're working on plans for Denver. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it, I'm sure you already are thinking of next year. It's like you've got a week until this year's Pride Fest here in Colorado. Uh, and then, yeah, that'd be a huge celebration next year. Yeah. Well, Rex, thank you so much. Rex Fuller, the Vice President of Communication and Corporate Giving with the GLBT Community Center of Colorado. This coming Pride Fest is your big fundraiser. Thank you for being here and taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having us out. And once again, the website for people who want more information and to volunteer? DenverPride.org. All right. I'm Melissa Moore. Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday morning. It's Mile High Magazine. Go out and have a great day. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues and people shaping Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.